Good afternoon. Welcome to week 19. 19. Yes, it's 19, and it's the last one that we will be talking about uh, the Acts of the Apostles, uh, which 19 weeks. Goodness, that's almost five months. Maybe our next one won't be quite so long. And I'll tell you, after we get through, I'll tell you what we're going to be doing next time. That is sort of coalescing in my pea brain. So uh, hopefully uh, by next week I'll have that all put together and we will be able to start that as our new topic for uh, forever how long it takes. I'm sure, I, I assure you it will not take 19 weeks, but then we will have something else unless, of course, Lord willing, uh, we start Sunday school back in the building again. Can you imagine that? I hope that that certainly comes through and pray that that comes true. All right, let me open with prayer and then we'll get started. Gracious Father, we do thank you. We thank you, Lord, for this beautiful day. We thank you for the snow yesterday. Uh, there were, were, were many people. I, I was out yesterday morning and, and observed many families out in their yards making snowmen and uh, having fun uh, in this relatively rare occasion here in Mississippi. But we thank you, Lord, that, that you have, uh, even in those times where uh, we have what we would consider to be bad weather, that it has good, good purposes it can be used for. And of course, the families playing together and sharing that together, that's a good thing. So we thank you, Lord. We also thank you, Lord, that you have again allowed us to come and to be here uh, and to use this medium of, of communication that we might stay in contact with those who, who faithfully watch each week. And so uh, we, are, we are happy to be here. We are thankful, Lord, that you have given us the occasion as well as the abilities to do uh, that which uh, you have ordained that we do. Uh, we ask that you would be with us today. Uh, as we finish up this particular uh, epistle, uh, or, or the, the book of Acts, which talks about, uh, of course, the beginning of the church and, and uh, how it, in the first century and, and what all uh, the great saints of the past have done in order to not only uh, carry forward what they were ordained to do, but also to put it in, uh, through the power of your spirit, put it in words so that we might be uh, the benefits, beneficiaries of that. So we thank you for that. We look forward to, to finishing up Acts and in the beginning of a new study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, today we are talking about the last two chapters in Acts. Uh, uh, let's see here. Get the right page. All right, we'll be in chapter 27 and 28. You'll remember last week we, talked, uh, we, we left off in the 32nd verse of chapter 26. Agrippa, Agrippa King Agrippa, uh, said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar, which of course uh, left them no choice but to put him on a boat and send him on over to uh, Italy or send him up to Rome uh, where he might have his opportunity and, and his right to appeal his court, I mean his case, before uh, a representative of Caesar or even perhaps Caesar himself. And so we begin now in chapter 27. And in chapter 27, it says, And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan Regiment. Well, the Augustan Regiment was nothing more than, than one of, a, a, a group of soldiers, uh, of centurions, if you will, of Augustan's army. They were a particular group of people that were set aside, and, and just about every prominent garrison uh, had soldiers like this who were, who were, their principal purpose was to escort prisoners. 
uh, in, a, in an empire like Rome was, uh, as you have all of these garrisons in far places, and especially for Romans, Romans who had the right to appeal whatever uh, jurisprudence may jurisprudence may have been uh, inferred upon them or given them, had the right to appeal back to, to Caesar. So it was not uncommon for, for soldiers and, and civilians too uh, to be carried back to uh, Rome. And so they had to have uh, someone to escort these soldiers back to their home country. And of course that, that fell to these, these people called the Augustan Regiment. Uh, it, it, might, it wasn't, a, uh, I guess, an official army unit per se. It was just soldiers who that was a part of their duty to do that. So, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And so entering a ship of the Adrum uh, Materium, Adrum Titium, I guess, I can't say that now. Uh, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. Uh, with us, when, when he says that, he, he, of course, the writer, Luke, is also there. So the, the, the three people from the apostles would have been, or accompanying Paul, would have been Paul, obviously Paul himself, and this is Aristarchus, Starchus, and of course Luke, and they were, all, they were allowed. Now, some, in some places you'll say, well, these, did, did the Roman government allow them to pay their passage and all that kind of stuff? Uh, not likely that that was the case. The, the boat that they were sailing on was a commercial vessel. It was a, it was a private boat. Uh, it wasn't something that belonged to the military or the, the, uh, the Roman army or anything like that, but it was a, a public conveyance. It had other passengers other than Paul and those accompanying him, as well as the fact that most people who were on that had to pay. And so it's quite possible that Rome paid for Paul since he was uh, he was a prisoner of Rome, uh, but the others probably had to pay for themselves as well as the other passengers on there. Now I wanted to, uh, I, I guess the, the camera will pick up this, this very bad, terribly awful map that I have drawn of the, the trip from Caesarea uh, up around the coast of Asia here down below uh, uh, Crete and then over to Malta and up to Rome. It's a very circuit. Circu I can't say anything today. Uh, it's a winding journey. Maybe I can say winding. It's a winding journey to get over there and all kinds of things happen and that's a part of what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, if you look uh, again back in 27, the, the third verse in chapter 27, it says, in the next day we landed at Sidon. They left, and it's only about 60, 70 miles from Caesarea to Sidon. So it's, it's sort of unusual that they set out on one day and they traveled 67 miles they, the, uh, up to Sidon and they stopped uh, there at Sidon. And the Julian, the, the Roman centurion who was guarding Paul, gave him permission to get off of the boat. It was a small boat. Uh, gave him permission to get off the boat and visit some friends there as well as to uh, to refresh himself would probably mean they gave him an opportunity to either uh, get some clean clothes because he had been uh, and obviously detained there in Caesarea for two years. So he must have been some people there who were going to provide us with clothing, perhaps give him an opportunity to take a bath and do other kinds of things to refresh himself. Now, as they started their journey, as you'll see here, uh, there couldn't have been a more perfect case of front loading for failure. Uh, and how did they go about doing that? Well, first of all, they started a 2,500-mile sea voyage uh, at probably the worst time of the year as far as sailing is concerned. 
generally speaking, in the Mediterranean Sea, which is all of this, this is the Adriatic, and of course the Mediterranean stretches around uh, up in that area. But in the Mediterranean Sea, generally the, the shipping lanes and travel was very, very hazardous from about uh, uh, October, which is probably the, 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 the latest uh, anyone would, would uh, set out on at least a long voyage, uh, from October until springtime, most people didn't do any traveling in here because uh, of, of the weather conditions. So they picked the wrong time of the year, but you can understand why they picked the wrong time of the year. Uh, Agrippa and Festus were, I guess, they had all that they needed to have from, from uh, or gotten all out of Paul, all of the use that they could get out of Paul, and of course he did have the, uh, the right to appeal, and so they said, okay, we're through with him, send him off up there, let them handling for a while, we've got other issues that we're going to take care of. And so they so they didn't they weren't concerned about what time of year it was. They just were ready to get rid of Paul. So they set out at the wrong time time of year. Because it was the wrong time of year, they also were constricted in the type of ships that were available. In uh, in Caesarea, uh, the only kind of boat that they could find to travel in was what, what most people would describe as inland shore boats. There was a small boat it did have some passengers on it, but it was certainly not a, a boat that was seaworthy to travel out in the Mediterranean Ocean here. And so they they just they, they had to get that boat. It was the only one available, so they loaded up and they got in that boat. Now that so they, the uh, another thing that was wrong was they, they had to go in the wrong direction. You know, if, if it was a straight line distance to Rome, it would have been directly west up through uh, in the Mediterranean past Malta and then up to Rome, about 2,500 miles straight line distance. But because of this time of the year, the winds are predominantly from the west, blowing west to east. And so they could not sail directly into the wind because it would have taken them forever to get there. And uh, they just had the wrong boat to do that to begin with. And they, so they had to go in a different direction. They had to sail up the coast. Stay, trying to stay behind all the barriers that they could of the westerly wind so that they could at least make some headway. And the best way to do that was to sail, stay very close to the coast and wind their way around until they got over here and then try to steer a, a southerly co uh, course. So they set off in the wrong direction and of course they had the wrong kind of wind. Again, the winds from the west were predominant for all, most of the winter. They did change, and that affected the course of their travel, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. After a very long and difficult first leg, uh, it, it was long from Caesarea to Sidon, and from Sidon over to Myra, Myra, Myra uh, they were able to find a bigger boat. They got there, and they found a boat that was from Alexandria, Egypt. And so it was a grain-hauling boat, uh, large enough to carry Paul and, and uh, about 260 other people. And so the boat was, uh, was filled to capacity. It was hauling grain mostly for Rome. It was from Alexandria, Egypt, which was down here. But it found itself up here at Myra, and it was just unloading some stuff there. And then it was going to, not unloading, but picking up some stuff here, and it was going to take it around to Rome. One of the things about the, this, this ship uh, that they got in, got in there in Myra. It was, first of all, it was a bigger boat. It was seaworthy, but it, and it had uh, 263, 65 people on it. 
uh, it says there in 27.5, And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. And there the centurion found the Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. And so it says they sailed slowly for many days. And as they were again, they were heading from here, and they were heading over to Sunitas. But as they got closer to Sunitas, they, they found that the going became increasingly difficult with the westerly winds because it kept pushing them away. And so it took them a long time to get from Myra over to here, and then they found out it was impossible to make the port in Sunitas. And so they decided that they were going to, to strike a southerly course, sort of a southeasterly course, and see if they couldn't get down to Crete and hide behind Crete and wait for the winds to change. Sit down here and find a, a place to, to put to port. And so they could hide perhaps for the rest of the winter uh, in a safe seaport, and then they would try to pick up their trip in the springtime. Well, as they, as they moved down here, they got down to around Fairhaven, a, a place, a port called Fairhaven. And it says that, uh, uh, passing it, when we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Sunitas, the wind was not permitting us to proceed. We sailed under the shelter of Crete off of Salome. And so they, had, they, they came down, started a southeasterly course, and then they got down to Fair, uh, Fairhaven which is not where they wanted to go. They wanted to go to this place called Phoenix because they, they thought that that was the best wintering station that they could put in port there and wait until springtime, which was about three to four months away. They could wait until springtime and wait till the weather improved and the winds changed so they then could strike out for Rome. Well, they got down to Fairhaven and they decided that they needed to push on. Paul says, no, and in verse 10, Paul gives him a warning. And he says, saying, men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Well, Paul was a, he was a, a singular voice in that, in that opinion because he was overruled promptly by the centurion uh, and Julian and also the captain of the ship. And the, and the reason those two probably overruled Paul was that even though there might have been, obviously there was, increased danger as they moved further out into the Mediterranean, uh, it was also true that they had just come from Myra, where they had been loaded with grain, which was destined for Rome, and Rome, and the owner of the ship, of course, uh, had a contract with the, with the uh, government of Rome, or with the emperor of Rome, to deliver that grain, because Rome has historically always run short of grain during the wintertime. And so they were under a great deal of pressure to meet their contractual obligations, and so they didn't want to stay uh, if they could avoid it. So they were hoping that good weather would come. Well, uh, the weather tricked them a little bit because the next, after they arrived down here at Fairhaven, they woke up the next day and they had clear skies and sunny and, it, and the wind had died down and, and they thought, well, wow, we better take advantage of this. And so they said, well, we will, we will leave Fairhaven, we'll go over to Phoenix, and everything looks good, then we will continue around to Rome. Well, they started out. Phoenix was only, I think, about 50, 30, 35 or 40 miles from, from Fairhaven. But, and they started to sail that way, but just as soon as they started to sail that way, that weather, which looked sunny and bright, also turned very dangerous. And they... Uh, 
what they call a uroquilo came up here in the here in America. And you've probably heard the expression before. Is is we they had a northeastern uh, up in the up in the New England states. They they hear about northeasters all the time because that brings some of the worst weather to the northeastern part of the United States as the water comes in off of the the winds and the water coming in off of the uh, around the Arctic Circle, I guess, and come across uh, New York and New England and all those, and it really causes not only bad weather in the in the open oceans, but it causes bad weather uh, ashore too, as it blows in all of that snow and ice and so forth. So that's what happened. The winds changed from blowing from the west to blowing from the east, and it blew the ship away. They couldn't even direct it. The, the ship wouldn't even go towards Phoenix. They had the, the ship kept being blown down. Uh, south of Crete, this is the island of Crete, the Fairhaven and Phoenix were just ports on the island of Crete, so they were blown adrift here, and uh, they lost their, their power uh, from, a, from a following sea, because the sea started moving this way, as the wind was blowing this way, and a, uh, and a boat that's loaded down, and, uh, and some of those boats that they were sailing in weren't very seaworthy to begin with, but at the same time, there was very little that they could do to combat the, the force of the wind and the seas. And so as they got down here, they found themselves uh, in a place that they certainly did not want to be. And you can imagine that Paul would have said, we should stay back there. Well, I told y'all, I told y'all, but Paul didn't say that right away anyway. So the boat drifts out of control for about two weeks. As a matter of fact, the, the scriptures in 27, talks about it, says now, uh, the text, if you read all of the text there, it just says that they were blown up and down in the Adriatic. And here it looks like it was just a, a round uh, or sort of a, a straight line, but, but a curved trajectory here as the winds were blowing them down this way. Uh, but <clears throat> So that doesn't accurately portray how much time they spent out there or how much uh, variation there were in this track. But finally, after two weeks, uh, the winds begin to die down a little bit. Uh, they, they were afraid, of course, that once they were blown down in this area, they were going to be blown over into North Africa, and they would be, be shipwrecked on the, the, the coast of, the, of Northern Africa. And so that was their primary concern. Verse 27, 27, it says that, uh, Now when the fourteenth night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. Now, that sense of drawing near, near some land usually uh, is a sense not not uh, of uh, you know some sixth sense, but a fact that you can hear waves crashing or or other sounds. Uh, it's not like uh, well, some sailors say they think they can smell. When you get close to land, you can smell land. Or, or perhaps it has to do with seabirds. You see more seabirds, it's more likely that they are coming from land. But anyway, uh, it was on the 14th night. And of course, the, the, the text talks about how rough the water was and how, and you know, being out there, there wasn't anything they, they could do to control the boat. And uh, for the most part, everybody hunkered down for two weeks uh, in this, this uh, Uroquilo, uh, this typhoon kind of a wind that was blowing them around in the ocean, they were probably all scared half to death. Uh, they were probably all probably seasick, uh, and they were not eating. And so they were uh, wondering, you know, expecting at any moment that the worst was going to happen, that either the boat was going to become swamped or the boat was going to be rolled over in some way. Uh, but they, they just had 
the feeling that they weren't going to survive. And of course, as they got closer up to Malta, and that's where in, in the 27th verse, or 28th verse, and then they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. 20 fathoms would be 120 feet. And when they had gone a little further, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. So the, the, the water was getting shallow very quickly. 15 fathoms would be 90 feet. So they, in just a little uh, ways, they had, had closed the gap there by about 40, uh, 30 feet. And so then, verse 29, it says, Then, fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. They wanted to slow the forward momentum of the, of the ship to keep it from crashing or being grounded on some rocks or, or perhaps a reef or something else. And so they threw out some, some anchors out the back, four of them, to try and slow the progress of the ship, hoping that it would keep them from running aground. In verse 30 it says, And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting it out anchors for the prom. Well, what the, the sailors there, the, the ship's crew, were looking to, uh, to get the heck off the boat. That's what they were looking to do. So they, they launched the lifeboat, usually a lifeboat in, in cases like ships like this. And at that time, uh, they had a rope that was attached to the lifeboat and it was let off the ro a long rope and followed along behind the ship some, uh, some number of feet. Uh, Earlier in the text, it talks about when the water got so rough and they were afraid that the lifeboat was going to be swamped by waves in that following sea and they couldn't control it, they pulled the lifeboat in and put it on board the ship. Now they're, they're getting close to land, they think they're going to be shipwrecked, and so the sailors that were on the ship and part of the crew decided they're going to launch the lifeboat and they're going to take it to shore. They're going to amscray. They're going to get the heck out of there while the getting is good and leave the rest of the crew, or less of the people, the passengers, to their own devices. And Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So Paul had already had a vision that told him as long as they stayed on the boat, not a, not a one would lose their life. And so he had shared that. And uh, here in verse 31, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And so then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall. So, they, okay, you know, we get rid of the lifeboat, then you will have to stay on board. And that's exactly what happened there. And as the day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day. You've waited and continued without food, and you've eaten nothing. Well, I, again, I, I'm sure that that was probably, one, because it was difficult to prepare food uh, because of the roughness of the sea, and the other was that probably most of them were seasick to the point that they did not want to eat. I don't know. I'm sure that some of you are watching that, that perhaps you've been seasick before. If you have, you know that's not a pleasant feeling. Uh, so, and, and you certainly don't want to eat at that time. So anyway, as they, Paul now uh, himself, since he's, he's, the, t the time is now, he had that, that, uh, that feeling that this was the time. And this is what they needed to do. They're going to be able to leave the ship when it's shipwrecked. He says, therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survivals, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. You need to eat something so you'll have the strength in order to survive this shipwreck that we're fixing to have. And when he had said these things, he took bread and he gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. And in all were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, threw out the wheat into the sea, 
And then it was started to get dawn again. So here they are. They drifted around out here in the sea, being tossed up and down, not knowing where in the world they were going. And then they get over here close to Malta. At that time, it was called, I think in the, in the scripture it says Melita. Uh, but the, it's, it's, it is the island of Malta. As they got closer, they decided this is our chance to ground the boat, get off of this thing, and get ashore and save ourselves. Verse 39 says, When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run, planned to run the ship, if possible. And they let go to the they let the anchors go, let them into the sea, just cut the ropes, let them go, let the ship be free to be pushed towards the shoreline. And they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. And so evidently they had a following wind here as they got, and they saw that there was a as they got closer to the island and the sun began to come up, they could see that there was a creek running out from the island into the into the ocean. And so they decided that that let's head directly for the, the opening there, and perhaps we can ground the ship in the opening of it where it comes into the, there usually is silt deposits and so forth, uh, where, like the Mississippi going into the Gulf, uh, as the Mississippi uh, puts, pushes all of its sediment, the muddy Mississippi, pushes all of its sediment, usually it settles out into the, the area as it comes together with the Gulf of Mexico, and usually there's some some uh, a very built up, and most of those little islands around the, uh, the coast of Louisiana and the Gulf of Mexico all are there as a result of deposits made by the Mississippi River, which is dumped silt. And of course, the, the, the water is shallow. They have, that, have to keep dredging it out for ships to be able to use the Mississippi Channel. And so that's what they thought here. They knew that then. And so they decided, okay, let's, let's head the bow, the bow of the ship right to that cove, and we'll ground it there in the mud, and, uh, the, the, uh, and perhaps it will hold the ship, and we'll be able to get off of the ship and get to shore. And so that's exactly what they did there. He said, by striking the place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the prow struck fast and remained immovable. But the stern was being broken up by the violence of the wave. Obviously, the sea the probably had some following seas here from that wind, and so as the the front of the ship was securely locked there into the of the silt of the of that little creek, and so uh, the back end tore up. It says the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. The rest on. Uh, some on boards and some on other parts of the ship, and so it was that they escaped safely to land. So all 276 people got off of the ship and got on the island there in Malta. Now, as they were, as they were, uh, the adventure had an upside. Uh, of course, there were many downsides to being shipwrecked. Uh, not, not, not the least of which was Paul. Paul knew all along this was what that was going to happen. And so, uh, and he, he let them know, you know, this is what I told you this is going to happen. However, the upside is, is not everybody, no one is going to die. And so the, thing, the other upside was that they were able to shipwreck without anybody being lost. And once they got ashore, they found out that there was a very friendly, a very congenial group of people there. The, the, Malton, the, uh, the inhabitants of Malta turned out to be very friendly people. Uh, of course, they consider them, and the text says here in chapter 28, it says, Now when they had escaped, they found out that the island was called Malta, 
and the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. As you'll remember now, this is the, about the middle of winter, and so they, I'm sure it was very cold, even in the Mediterranean, uh, and certainly even there on the island of Malta, even though it's in, in somewhat of the southern hemisphere, it still gets cold in the winter time, and the winds are blowing, and they're all wet, and they're all cold, and they came across, uh, they, they swam ashore for the most part, uh, but people were waiting there for them, they built some fires to warm them up. One of the interesting stories, of course, of this great adventure is the one about Paul. He's there, you know, scurrying around trying to gather up firewood to put on the fire. And this is the time in, in chapter 28 here. Uh, verse 4 says, when the natives saw that the creature, well, Paul was getting up some firewood, when he gathered up these sticks, there happened to be some sort of a serpent in the stick. And the serpent latched it when, he, when Paul picked it up and brought it over close to the fire, the snake was latched onto his hand. Paul never, he didn't try to pull it off or anything, but as they, fire, as they got close to the fire, the viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And verse 4 says, so, so when the natives saw the creature hanging from its hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man's murderer. <laughs> that's, that's the kind of res response we, we humans would normally have. Man, or what he did, see, for that bad luck, man, does he have... If it wasn't for bad luck, he'd have no luck. Just got shipwrecked. He comes ashore. He's safe now. And now he's been bit by a, a viper, which, of course, they expected him to die from. Um, interesting sideline of that is that uh, uh, historically, or, or at least currently, there are no venomous snakes on the island of Malta. As a matter of fact, uh, there's no snakes at all that they're able to identify. But anyway, at this time, 2,000 years ago, there, there was... Uh, what was obviously what was considered to be a, a poisonous snake had bitten Paul, but it didn't slow him down at all. He continued to work and to build a fire, and of course they kept watching him, hoping or expecting at any minute this this sinful person is going to kill over because uh, he had been bitten by a, a viper. But it says in verse five, he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm whatsoever. All right, there there is a. Uh, Probably in the next 10 or 15 verses there, they talk about Paul and uh, the, not only were the natives there that, uh, from the island of Malta, but all of the good things. And of course, Paul immediately started to minister to those people. One of the, one of the things that the scripture talks about or points out is that uh, they were invited, the, the uh, inhabitants of the island of Malta invited them to, to meet some of the other inhabitants of, the Malta, of Malta. And of course, one of the places they took him it says in verse 8 in, the, in chapter 28, it says, And it happened that the father of Publius, Publius was sick. They went to the what they called the first man of the island, probably the governor or whatever the figure was that was the, the chief, the head honcho, the, the big chief of the island. Uh, they were going to take Paul and his companions to meet this guy. And so as they went to, to meet him, uh, it came out during the, the meeting that his father was sick. And so Paul went in to his father uh, and prayed, and he laid his hand on him, and he healed him. And so this, when, when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had disease also came and were healed. Uh, it goes on in the, in the scripture there, chapter 28, to talk about the fact that, that uh, not only because they were treated so well, but because they also were still away from the main island of, of the Italian coast here, 
And so they had to figure out how are we going to get from here up to uh, to the to Syracuse and perhaps Regia, and that's where they were uh, going to go because those were ports there. And then from there on up to Rome. Uh, so while they were planning that, Paul was was doing the things that Paul usually did. And that was to minister and also to do lots of, of good things as far as uh, healing the sick and, and caring for those that were there, etc. And I'm sure he was preaching the gospel at the same time. Um, even though they did not speak uh, the language, I'm sure that there was some way that they were being able to communicate. It says after three months, they were there for three months. It says after three months, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers which had wintered at, this, at the island. Uh, some of you historical folks or, or mythological uh, people would, would know who the twin, twin brothers were. Those were the, the uh, which appeared on a lot of places, not only in the Roman Empire, but on many of the ships that were uh, Roman in nature or who at least sold to Romans. Uh, it's Remulus and Romulus, or Remus and Romulus, the, the twin brothers, the mythological features of uh, uh, mythological creatures, if you will, twin brothers, who supposedly were credited with the founding of Rome. And uh, so they were. They were not real, at least from what I understand, they were not real, but they were, were uh, a part of the, the myth, myth, mythology around uh, the Roman Empire or the founding of Rome. But anyway, they saw a ship, Alexandrian ship, and it had the figurehead of the twin brothers, Remus and Romulus. And landing, it, they got on the ship, and they moved it, they left there and went up to Syracuse, and they stayed there for three days. And from there, we circled around and reached Regium. And after one day, the south wind blew, and the next day we came to Puteoli, and we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days, and so we went on to Rome. And that, is, that sort of ends the journey, if you will. They found themselves around. Now, they started this, they departed in, in, in probably in mid-August from Caesarea in AD 59. They arrived in Rome in April of AD 60. I say April because uh, we don't know exactly what day they arrived, other than the fact that it was spring already. In April AD 60, uh, that would be a, a safe bet. It, it may have been uh, uh, March, mid-March to late March, or it may have been April to late April, right? but it was springtime when they arrived in Rome. About seven, possibly eight months that it took them from the time they left Caesarea to travel the circuitous route and dangerous route around to Malta, Syracuse, Regia, and, and up to Rome. Very long trip, if you will. But they finally got to Rome. Uh, Paul did not receive the, the reception that he thought he was. Now, of course, he was, he was very glad that he did down here at Catola and, and Appiform. There was a, uh, some places where some believers from Rome came down, evidently had, had received word that Paul was en route. And so they came down and they met him just south of Rome and uh, uh, I, I guess welcomed him. So we, we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days and then we went on to Rome. And from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and he took courage. So now when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, and Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with a soldier who guarded him, with Julius. And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. Of course, Paul gets there, he's taken to uh, the holding facility, wherever it might be, and he and Julius, Julius were roomies, 
and uh, they were there uh, together, and uh, nobody was told him anything. Uh, it, it seemed as though the, the Romans uh, were not expecting him, or at least uh, uh, no word had come to them about who he was or what he had done or what he was accused of or anything else. And so they were there just waiting to speak to someone of authority in the Roman government. And likewise, uh, Paul didn't hear anything from, from the Jewish Jews that were there, so he called them. They didn't come directly, and certainly they did not come in an antagonistic way to say, where's that guy that's caused so much trouble in Jerusalem? We heard that he was coming, and we want to, hear to, want to be here to, to back up the charges, if you will. None of that came to fruition. So I'm, I'm sure Paul was surprised by that. But he called them to come to him. And they came to him and he did exactly what he had done with all the other meetings with the Jewish leaders. He told them who he was. He told them what he was accused of having done. And he told them his side of the story, that he did not do any of those things. And then he preached the gospel to them. And, they, and it, it says in the scripture here uh, that... Uh, uh, let's see what verse is... Well, the Jews said to him, then they said to him, we, we haven't received any letters from Judea concerning you. We don't, we, don't know, we don't know who you are. We don't know why you're here or any of that. So, because we haven't heard anything. But in verse 22, it says, but we desire to hear from you what you think concerning this sect we know that is spoken against everywhere. We, we've heard all of the bad talk about these Nazarenes or the, the people of the way or this, uh, this sect, of this Christian sect. Uh, nobody, nobody seems to like it, but we want to hear from you uh, since you're involved in it exactly what it's about. And so they, they appointed a day and, and gave them Paul an opportunity to, to uh, preach to them, and that's what he did. And so uh, after Paul had finished preaching, he found out that just like uh, I'm sure he expected, there were some who agreed with him and uh, wanted to become believers themselves, and there, of course, were others who were ambivalent, uh, didn't, didn't care one way or the other about uh, becoming believers, and they went off in their ways arguing about whether it was true or not true. If you look up into verse 28, in chapter 28, <clears throat> uh, Paul sort of accumulates his meeting with them by telling them, because the Jews have, have rejected the salvation that was offered through the Messiah, he says, therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. So Paul was saying, I've come and I've done what I needed to do in coming to the Jews first. So I've come to you. Some of you have, have believed me, others of you have not believed me, and others of you could care less one way or the other. He said, but since I, I have done what I have been obligated to do by coming to the Jews first, and you have let it be known to you now that the salvation of God is going to be offered to the Gentiles. Well, what he was telling them was that, you know, I'm going to start preaching to the Gentiles uh, now that I have talked to you. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. So it, the... the, the it's sort of an anticlimactic finish to the books, book of Acts because it doesn't say what, obviously it doesn't say what happened to Paul. Uh, Luke, the author of Acts, was there with Paul and obviously it, it ends on a note that uh, 
Uh, well, there, there's more to the story, but we don't know what the more to the story is because uh, the most commentators would believe that, that uh, Luke finished writing Acts while he was there in Rome with Paul and that everything seemed to be going okay. So for Paul, for the next two years, was principally ministering to the Gentiles or carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in and around the city of Rome. Uh, obviously, he couldn't, he couldn't go too far. They, they, I'm, I'm sure that his, his security was lax, but at the same time, they didn't turn him loose. He lived in his own house, which, of course, he and, and uh, his, the other believers there, of the community of believers, paid for. And so he lived there in the house, and of course, I'm sure he either had, uh, he was probably afforded some opportunity to go out into the community, but for the most part, people were coming to him, and he was preaching the gospel to the Gentiles there. And so the, the, the book of Acts leaves us there, assuming that all is well. Paul is there. He's gotten there just as, as God had promised him that he would, and he was going to minister to, uh, to both the, the kings and the, uh, the Gentiles there in Rome. And so we leave the book of Acts not having gotten the last word, if you will. Uh, we also know that, that while Paul was in uh, Rome, that there were three epistles that he wrote. Uh, of course, one of those epistles, all, all four epistles, uh, he, he wrote to the churches that he had founded on his, for the most part, in his second missionary journey. Uh, he wrote uh, uh, Ephesians, he wrote the Philippians, he wrote uh, um, Thessalonians, I believe it was, the first, uh, first letter of the Thessalonians, and the other one just skips my mind right offhand. But anyway, uh, so what I thought I would do, uh, as we go, as we move from Paul and his two years of ministering there, preaching the gospel of Christ to the Gentiles in Rome, as God promised him that he would do, and he's doing that, but in the same, at the same time, he was writing these epistles back to the churches that he had visited, recounting, or at least uh, not only offering some further theological advice to them, but also offering them in comfort and encouragement in Christ Jesus. And so uh, I, I thought as, as a way of, of continuing uh, looking at Paul, we would look at those letters that he wrote uh, while he was in prison there. And we're going to start with that by ta taking up Philippians next week. So well, I'll start on Philippians. Uh, there's only four chapters in Philippians. So uh, I'm thinking maybe it will take us eight weeks. Maybe I can do a half a chapter each week. Uh, looking at, at Paul and his instructions. Now, I know Philippians is a, is a, a favorite for many people because of uh, not only Paul talking about uh, what's most important to us as believers, but also some, some uh, relatively deep theological points that he has to make, too, about who Christ was. And so uh, I will leave you with that today. I hope you've enjoyed Acts. I hope you, you know a little bit more about Acts and uh, the context of, of Paul, and, uh, and as you read, as we, as we now go and read some of the epistles, uh, exactly what the, the context would have been there when Paul visited those uh, places and what might have been on his mind and what might have been on their mind as they saw the church begin to, to not, not only to the genesis of it, but also the growth and perhaps in some cases the maturity of it. So I trust that you'll be back next week. Well, Ray and I, God willing, we will be here. So let me close with prayer. Gracious Father, uh, we, we thank you so much for all that you do for us. Uh, Father, we, we know that sometimes our immediate reaction when we, when we realize what all has been done for us and for our salvation, 
uh, we, we, our, our immediate thing is, is to think about, well, what can I do? What, what is it that I can do to sort of pay back all that I've received? Uh, and, of course, that's, that's one of the big mistakes that we make, is that we think it, it, it somehow it's something we can do. Uh, Lord, we, we neglect the very fact uh, that what has been done for us has been done by grace. Uh, there's nothing that we need to do except to do what Christ has asked us to do, and that is to be like him. And so it's not about what I can do, but it is all about what we can be. And so, Father, we, we, I ask today and, and pray that each one of us will look and consider each day, uh, how can I be more like Christ? And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. <laughs>